Hello everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello, and joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, is the kid with a bike, it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Very good. I am now regressing that I don't know enough French to bullshit through the intro. <laughs> yeah. I studied French for three years at school, and then as soon as I stopped, I completely forgot all of it. Mm, I bet if pushed, though, you could probably ask where the Soviet embassy is. Yeah, um, yeah, that's all, all. Like you know, how to order a, like a single room in a hotel with a shower. <laughs> uh, they always added the shower thing as if you know it wasn't built into the cost. Anyway, that kind of French gibberish aside, what's in the news this weekend? We've got a lot to kind of get through today. Kind of start with some good news. Mystery Science Theatre Three Thousand is coming back. Yes, coming back thanks to Kickstarter. This is the kind of most prominent Kickstarter to get a project off the ground, or at least to bring a court property back since Veronica Mars a few years ago, which we talked about with uh, great interest at the time because it was the first time anyone had really done that and it had been wildly successful. And this one has been as well because they earned their, uh, they managed to reach their, their basic goal of $2 million to make three new episodes uh, in about two days, which was, you know, very good. Although they, they are aiming to get to, 5.5 5.5 million so they can do essentially a whole new season to basically say to networks and executives hey we have an audience here who want to see more of this show i know it's been off the air for 16 17 years but you know people are still really into the idea of it and we we think that there's something there but it's yeah it's quite cool that they've managed to bring it back mm. And it's it's not something that's going to particularly go out of date, is it? Kind of riffing on old movies. So it's something that can, you know, I can't really see why you wouldn't kind of get behind that if you're a network. It's kind of money for old rope, isn't it? Yeah, and also it's a format that is very easy to replicate. The, you know, the in the original run of the show, they swapped the cast a few times, different hosts, different kind of support people, different writers came in and out because it was on the air for more than a decade and... There was lots of kind of behind-the-scenes drama when the original creator, Joel Hodson, who is behind the new version as well, basically didn't get on with some of the producers and decided to leave, and the head writer of the show, Mike Nelson, took over. And, you know, there's there is, it's not like there's just this kind of gold standard or this kind of set-in-stone thing of, no, you it has to be done with these certain people in these certain roles. It feels very much like, oh, no, you can slot new people in there such as uh jonah ray who's going to be the new the new host of the show and as long as you have funny writers you know sitting there and coming up with funny things for the characters to say over terrible movies uh it, it's pretty easy to replicate or hopefully it will be mm. yeah speaking of replicating things segue in kind of remake news that literally no one ordered the remake of memento seems to be on the cards yeah, it's one of those things where someone has basically said, oh yeah, we're looking into doing this, and there's not really much in the way of concrete information about who's going to direct it or write it or star in it, but the mere suggestion of it set Twitter into a kind of a, a blaze of anger and uh, snark as a result of it, because it's not a film that a lot of people were really that interested in seeing happen. Hmm, and it seems like an odd target for a remake, something that's kind of very unique in its in its way and to try and do it again seems seems like a folly 
Yeah, and it's also not really... Obviously, for the time it was successful, it, it made a decent amount of money for a low-budget film, and it was Oscar-nominated, I believe, for Best Adapted Screenplay. And it was because it was based on um, uh, Jonah Nolan's short story, uh, even though it had never been published. So technically it was original. But yeah, so it's it's it was fairly successful at the time, and obviously Christopher Nolan, his stock has risen somewhat in the years since that time. But... It's not the sort of thing where you look at that and you think that's money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It doesn't strike me as a property that's really going to make a huge amount of money and therefore, and, and that would what would attract people to do to make it. And also, it's not a bad film. And I always think that the best reason to remake a film artistically is because it's a film that's not particularly good or that it's kind of too of its. It's so of its time that you can do something kind of new and interesting with it. And, you know, in big, the classic examples would be things like The Fly and The Thing, both of which are based on old science fiction films that were, were pretty good, but very much of their time. And so you could you had elements that you could update to the 80s and have very specific creative visions behind it. Whereas I don't feel like we're so far removed from the world of memento that it really needs to be retold for the uh for 15 years after it happened mm. and a film that has a ridiculously tight screenplay uh, mm. in the sense that it is uh, like all of christopher nolan's films a kind of an elaborate shell game uh where you're not really sure what's going on uh, until the final frame so it it doesn't seem like something that's kind of like a loose concept that someone could kind of go and run with and, and put their own spin on it it's it's just kind of there you can't it's just a thing you don't you don't really kind of need to if you added stuff to it it would just be kind of padding if you took stuff away it would all fall down it's it didn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense my i think the main reason to make it now is the is because of smartphone technology just because i think it'd be interesting to see if you could get the same amount of drama from someone just clicking delete on three <laughs> photos on your phone instead of setting fire to polaroid or if the the guy Pierce character in records memos to himself, but he accidentally does it on Snapchat, which would just make the whole situation much much worse for him. Mm, yeah, yeah, Memento, but told exclusively through someone's social media profiles, is a kind of a nightmarish thing that I've just imagined. <laughs> yeah, someone coming back through there, kind of kill John G on Facebook post. John G liked this. What? Huh? <laughs> That's kind of really terrifying. Oh, I'm giving them ideas, Ed. We shouldn't be saying these things. Trailers this week had two that kind of have uh, piqued our interest. The first one is for Zoolander 2. Too long after the fact, Ed? Or do you think it's going to be good old-fashioned fun? I think it could be fun. I do also think it's too long after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it is... From the trailer, there were a few jokes in it that I thought were quite funny. I particularly liked... Even though I think it's lazy to bring back Will Ferrell as... Mugatu, I can also see that it obviously makes sense to bring him back because people remember him from the first film. I did like him saying that prison changed him and then he comes out and he's super buff, but then he reveals it's just a muscle suit. Although, mm. as my friend Kay pointed out on Facebook, that's the sort of joke that probably would have been better saved for the film rather than putting it in the trailer mm. because it, it's you immediately ruin the surprise. It would have been much funnier if they had had him featured in the trailer just like massively buff. And then when you watch the film, it's only for like five seconds. But it kind of reminded me a lot of Anchorman 2 in that you watched it and there were a lot of cameos or or there were lots of really big stars kind of showing up because they're like 
they like the original. And mm. there's something really weird about seeing Benedict Cumberbatch playing a kind of uh, asexual, weird-faced model and him trying to fit into this kind of very goofy Ben Stiller comedy. Mm. Is David Bowie back for it? I would hope so. I mean, I mm. know he's not uh, he's not touring or anything anymore, but I think that he, he needs to come and judge another walk-off. Mm. He's uh, got a new record out, hasn't he, soon? Maybe uh, it could be a kind of tie-in promotional kind of cross-pollination there. I, I would love to see him perform one of his kind of 15-minute-long atonal drones from the new album. That's his price for appearing in the second film, is they, they give him a full time to... Or if he sings the theme and it's in the full, kind of dark and dark and weird, that would be a, very enjoyable to me. Mm, he's gone a, gone a bit kind of latter-day Scott Walker, hasn't he, uh, David Bowie? Um, I saw someone earlier this week. They're like, "Oh, David Bowie's dropped a new single." I was like, oh, "That's cool." They're like, "It's ten minutes and it's kind of crackers." <laughs> just like, "Oh wow!" Yeah, Fair there play. was a track. The last track on his his last album was like that as well. It was him just kind of over these very dark and discordant things, going, "My father ran the prison." And it's like, "Ooh, this is very very dark and weird." <laughs> At the end of a very dark and sad album. So mm. uh, I'm interested to see that he's gone in that direction, and I hope that uh, that's all that Zoolander is, is just these dark chords of a weird slapstick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd watch that. It'd be much more interesting than Anchorman 2, that's for sure. Other trailer this week that is uh, very exciting is uh, Jeff Nichols has got a new film coming out, and it's called Midnight Special. Jeff Nichols, for those of you who don't know, kind of... He's kind of the master of these kind of like southern gothic kind of stories. He did shotgun stories, and then he did Take Shelter. What was the film he did in between? I can't remember the name of it. Uh, he did Mud After Take Shelter. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And now he's got a kind of a new sci-fi film out, which uh, looks pretty cool. It, it does. It's It reminded me a lot of Looper, in that it looks like a sci-fi film that's not too sci-fi-y, in that it looks like it was made for a modest budget. And it stars Michael Shannon, who is not the kind of the big name draw, much as Joseph Gordon-Levitt wasn't really that big of a draw when he was the star of Looper. And it's about him playing the man who a man whose son has some sort of telekinetic power, which is manifested by it through a slightly cheesy glowing eye uh, special effect, which was my only misgiving in the trailer. Everything else in it looked very exciting. I liked the idea of this man trying to protect his son and going on the run, and it seems to. Uh, visually, it seems to recall a lot of his other work, but obviously taking place in a new a new genre. Uh, mm. But yeah, th- those every time those eyes showed up, I kind of thought, yeah, each flash of this is probably going to knock like ten million off of its final box office because it's the sort of thing that people could find off putting. Mm. Or maybe like Ryan Johnson, he's putting a marker down to be uh, considered for uh, episode ten, possibly. Uh, I, I would not mind that at all. I think, or to get give him a uh, a Star Wars story, which is just like takes place on Dantooine or something. Mm. I mean, Michael Shannon just kind of like mumbling dialogue <laughs> for two hours. Again, I'd watch that quite hard. Speaking of kind of uh, sci-fi, this is kind of old news, but uh, we haven't even talked about it in the last two weeks. And I still can't quite believe it. But Shane Carruth has not only got a new film in the pipeline, but like the cast is ludicrous. Yeah, he's finally hiring actors people have heard of or people <laughs> that aren't him. <laughs> yeah. Is he slimming down his uh, responsibilities this uh, time around by just being the director and writer? 
I believe so, although I think it'd be remiss of him not to also make the coffee at least a few times. Yeah, just he'll probably, probably make a loaf of sandwiches or get his mum in to do it. <laughs> it's very, very cool because obviously Shane Garouf is someone who has made only two films in the course of... When, when did Primer come out? 2004? Yep. Yeah, he's only made two films in 11 years and they're both kind of these these marvellous and strange, very, very low budget but very high concept and very big ideas driven sci-fi films and he's someone who always seems to be on the cusp of maybe not necessarily breaking out but certainly of breaking into the mainstream in some way that he also worked on the aforementioned Leaper, for example, in some kind of mysterious capacity. So he's someone who is who looks like he's ready to make that leap and uh, the idea of him working with like big stars like Keanu Reeves, it makes you wonder what exactly he can do with, you know, more than 10 quid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be could be a disaster though. You know, maybe he needs to thrive making films that are kind of tied together with chewing gum and string rather than, you know, having three assistant directors and, you know, all the... All the trimmings. Hmm, we'll see. Uh, if it ever happens, it's probably some elaborate scam to disguise the fact that he's making six films in a week. To catch up, the last thing we're going to talk about in the news this week is a video that we saw. Because <laughs> that sounds really dodgy, like, to start <laughs> with. A video that's kind of been doing the rounds on the internet this week concerning Peter Jackson and the Hobbit movies. For those of you who don't know, Peter Jackson is the Lord of the Rings director and he made some Hobbit movies and they were terrible because... You know, The Hobbit's a fun, rollicking adventure and they padded it out into kind of 95 hours of kind of drab nonsense. But it turns out that has been unearthed a video from the uh, newest extended version of the film, which extends it to kind of 196 hours, has revealed that, that they didn't really have a great time making the film. And the kind of short clip that's been going round kind of talks about how when Guillermo del Toro was in charge, he was going to direct the film. And when he dropped out, Peter Jackson said, all right, I'll I'll kind of step in and do it. But they kind of couldn't stop the train and didn't have time to go back and rejig the film for Peter Jackson as director rather than Guillermo del Toro. And they did some stuff. They started a lot of designs from scratch and everything, but, you know, they kind of couldn't stop. And the video kind of details this kind of, the kind of that going into a tailspin, really. And two things happening, the, the kind of shoot being ended early so he could send everyone home and kind of, figure out what they were doing and uh, the kind of truly kind of kind of sad sight of watching Peter Jackson absolutely beleaguered existing on kind of like three hours sleep a night just sitting on an empty set trying to make up what ended up being an incredibly complex piece of filmmaking and action cinema uh, on the spot and owning up to the fact that a it wasn't a good time and b he was winging pretty much the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's really interesting about it is that it is, like you say, it's a promotional thing on the Battle of the Five Armies DVD, or Blu-ray, I guess, and it is the most miserable making of featurette (laughs) I think that has ever been released and officially sanctioned. It is just these, not not only Peter Jackson, but also uh, Richard Taylor, the kind of star of the old Lord of the Rings DVDs, Mm -hmm. who's just this uh, very uh, gawky but incredibly visually creative guy who just uh, sits and and talks about all of the various work they've been doing and he he makes the comparison of how on the original Lord of the Rings they would on the Lord of the Rings films they would 
have time like they would have all of their props and everything made a year in advance so he was able to sit and have a photo of him sitting in front of all of these elaborate suits and they didn't have time to do any of that on the hobbit and uh, they talk about having how they shot like three days of the or two days of the battle of the five army sequence but they just had no idea what they were doing so they essentially they, so you just see this footage of all these people holding giant green swords just kind of twirling them about and not really seeming to do anything and uh, Andy Circus there with a, a long ponytail just kind of looking like, what are we doing? I have no mm. idea. This is like a massive, big-budget film. We don't know what we're meant to be doing in this climactic battle scene. And it is just kind of startlingly honest. And also, you just see everyone, all of the interviewees, make no attempt to hide how miserable they were. Mm. Which is, you know, even on the, the Lord of the Rings DVDs, when they interviewed people, those were people who were clearly exhausted and they had been on this epic years-long journey to get these films made but they were still obviously carried along by the joy of the creative process and when you just see them in this film they're all kind of tired and haggard and just sitting there thinking i'm just glad this is all going to be over soon <laughs> we cannot be making a, a lord of the rings movie mm. it was it's kind of brings up something that we kind of wanted to talk about for a long time which is the quite absurd pressure that a release date will kind of put on things. It's been, it was kind of like a nineties thing, isn't it? That, that they would come up with a film, they'd announce it and they put a release date on it. They would try and kind of put a marker down for being the film that weekend of the year, um, which comes with this whole uh, trend that uh, film is kind of uh, opening weekend or bust essentially. And it kind of flies in the face of any kind of logic because what you would do is kind of make the film. And then kind of when you've got a good idea, of how it's going, you would be like, oh, cool, I reckon we can release this then. And then you do that, rather than kind of uh, saying you're going to do it, uh, picking a date, and then releasing whatever comes out. And it's fascinating to see that someone like Peter Jackson, someone who had engineered himself into the position of having an unlimited budget and having complete creative control and final cut, cannot get an extension (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on his homework, which is crazy. And, I mean, the, the same thing has happened, like, you know, with Joss Whedon, for example, had a dreadful time making The Avengers. And this is Joss Whedon. Like, he he, he turned in The Avengers. Uh, he should have been given the keys to the kingdom and just say, like, you know, do whatever you want, take the time you need or whatever. No, they're just like, right, you're doing the next one. Sign here. <laughs> Here's the date. Don't be late. Uh, and yeah, the kind of the ringer they kind of put him through to get there is kind of crazy, and it's it's telling that like in the episode seven kind of production history, J.J. Abrams had to really fight Lucasfilm to say, I don't want to release it in the summer or release it in the winter because if we do that, we're not going to have time. Which is like, is that the is that the only condition under which a studio will budge if there's like some kind of change of personnel? I mean, obviously not if it, the kind of Guillermo del Toro thing's anything to go by. Yeah, I remember there was an interview with J.J. Abrams, I think it must have been over the summer or maybe at Comic-Con, where he was talking about it and he was talking about how he was relieved that they had like an extra six months to edit. Mm-hmm. And the way he talked about it, he was saying, you know, it was great to have time to really sit there and work on it. And kind of thinking, that, that seems sad that that is a rarity. Mm. You know, you would think that with films that you would ha- you would give people the time in order to make sure that the thing actually works. Um, but obviously with these set release dates, that's obviously not possible. And also the, the kind of the big problem with setting a release date like that 
years in advance is when you eventually do push it back it looks really embarrassing mm. next year i think superman batman versus superman was meant to come out this year and then got pushed back and now it's gone to like a different weekend and it was then going to be against captain america 3 and then it got pushed back so it looks like it's chicken shit when compared to captain america and it's there's all these kind of bragging rights to get hold of the good weekends but it also looks you know when as the, as soon as you hear that film isn't going to meet its release date or it's being pushed back. There's always that sense of something's not gone right there. And usually audiences don't care and they'll go and see the film anyway, but it is the sort of thing that just looks embarrassing for the studio and the people involved. Mm. It's it's also kind of representative of uh, short-term thinking by studios where, Mm. like, if they say, right, okay, we're going to give you this much money, we're going to put this person in charge and we'll release it on this date um, and we're going to make a fuck ton of money is that better than saying we're going to get the best possible person for the job, we're going to give them what they need, and then we're going to give them uh, the tools and the space and the time they need to make a film that people are going to love forever? Obviously it's not. (laughs) Obviously it's better to give people the time, and it's weird that that thinking, once you hit a certain budget level, that thinking just goes away. Mm. Like if you're making a film with relatively little money, I think they're more willing to kind of sit there. Or if you're like an upstart distributor or producer, there's something like, you know, A24, who are having something of a banner year this year uh, with like Room and uh, and the end of the tour and stuff. They they often have talked about the... Uh, there was an interview with uh, Lenny Abramson, who's the director of Room, where he was talking about how he was amazed by how hands-off they were and how he just let him... They let him just kind of get to work and do what he wanted with the film and and that film's been met with rave reviews and is doing you know fairly well in limited release so on low budget films it seems that people are more willing to take the risk and say hey you know take your time do do what you want and and you know just try and get it in a decent time whereas i think as soon as the money gets to a certain point then they're saying no there's just you can't have any of that you have to meet this this certain date otherwise things will be awful and you know that when you're dealing with 100 200 300 million dollar movies i can understand people getting nervous but it's also that's the time when really you should be allowing people to try and make a good movie mm. do you think a studio head will ever be like it's it's going to cost 250 million here you go just just whenever you, whenever you've done it just bring it in whenever we don't we, you know take your time it's it's all good we don't want to see the dailies just 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 let, we'll see it on the day you know, just pop it, <laughs> pop it out when when you're ready. Well, it'll kind of be waiting. That's absurd. That that thing will never happen. It's kind of crazy that that, that we live in a situation where that kind of short term thinking dominates. Anyway, as is uh, a kind of new shot reverse shot tradition, we're going to have a birthday episode because it's my it was my birthday this week. As we established with Ed's birthday episode earlier this year, the birthday boy gets to choose to talk about whatever they want to talk about. So God help us, uh, this could be terrible. <laughs> But my first thing I want to talk about, Ed, this could turn into like two hours of running <laughs> and another thing. The first thing I want to talk about is something that's been bothering me for a couple of weeks, which is what's going to happen if Star Wars Episode Seven is shit? Well, I think the internet will break. I think the, the, um, the number of angry tweets and hot takes and think pieces going out will be just overwhelming. And then you'll see... Uh, shortages and everywhere and it'll be pandemonium cats and dogs living together (laughs) uh it it will be well i think it will be ugly because Mm. 
for whatever reason, the film has a tremendous goodwill. More, arguably more goodwill than, say, The Phantom Menace had, because The Phantom Menace, people were excited for it. It was the first new Star Wars in a very long time. First new Star Wars film, anyway. And, and we hadn't had quite the onslaught of all the ancillary stuff that has occurred since then. And I think people were... Uh, were just kind of excited to see new Star Wars, whereas this is not only people excited to see new Star Wars and the footage that's released has been really exciting and and uh, and tantalizing. It also has to redeem the franchise, mm. so people are extending it a lot of goodwill and they have very big expectations for it in a way. But uh, there were big expectations for the Phantom Menace, obviously, but I feel like this has a, a bigger bar to clear. Mm. And speaking of clearing the bar, it was uh, revealed yesterday or the day before yesterday that all those pre-sales we talked about on a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the IMAX sales topping $6 million and how absurd that was. To date, the film doesn't open for another month, let's not remember. We are looking at $54 million worth of pre-sales. That is crazy. It is. It's historically huge and possibly augurs... Uh, the the possibility that we will have the opening weekend record broken twice in one year, which mm. I don't think has ever happened before, mm. um, yeah. especially not in the kind of super massive mega opening era that we have now. You know, considering that the biggest opening at one point not not too long ago was the second Jurassic Park film, which had something like fifty seven million. Mm-hmm. So now that we're in the era where it's gone, okay, now it's 100 million, 150 million, 169 million, 207 million, 208 million. You know, they are they are huge amounts of money being thrown around. Uh, and the idea that two films could possibly uh, break that record in a single year is quite uh, impressive. Mm. Do you think that the new Star Wars movie will be any good? I hope so. I think it has a very, very good chance of being entertaining and not awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure it has the chance of greatness. I think it could be in the same way that the first Star Trek film was a very kind of light and breezy and enjoyable watch that didn't really linger much in the memory. I think that Jay James could bring that quality to it. Obviously, he has the added advantage of nostalgia and that he's bringing, not just bringing back iconic characters, he is bringing back iconic actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has the opportunity to tell new stories with these characters in much the same way they had with Star Trek, except now he doesn't have to, you know, use time travel to rewrite everything. He can just uh, use life, which is, you know, the, the more mundane version of time travel that we all get to experience mm-hmm. to, you know, just advance the story 30 years and to see what everyone's been up to. And I think that that offers very tantalizing opportunities but also leads open to the the problem that you know maybe it's been group to death because they've had lots of various people involved in it and it's something that's obviously been in development for a long time lots of lots of cooks involved in it and i think something that you've seen with disney's handling of the marvel films is that they at a certain point they kind of felt that they knew how to do those films and they became a little too controlling and they all became a little less distinct and more mediocre most obviously in Age of Ultron, where it was a film that had a lot of good elements that just seemed to get crowded out by all the franchise requirements, mm. um, which hopefully won't be too strong in this one because obviously it's the first building block in their big 
a new Star Wars film a year thing that they have planned. But stakes are so high that you kind of wonder if the uh, the suits may have played the hand a little too strongly. Mm. I'm worried that... I mean, I, I actually think it will be okay, but I think the Star Trek analogy is probably the best thing you're going to get. I think it is going to be something to restore a bit of faith to the franchise. Um, I think it will be enjoyable, um, but I don't think it will be kind of mind-blowing. And the reason I think that is that the turnaround time was pretty quick. They threw out the kind of script that was already in existence, written by Michael Arndt, who wrote uh, Toy Story 3, was it, he wrote? Uh, yeah, and Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, and they kind of uh, kind of lured Larry Kasdan out of retirement to kind of uh, knock something out with J.J. Abrams pretty quickly. Um, so that kind of worries me slightly. What also worries me slightly is that we don't really know anything about the plot. We can piece bits together from what they've said, but those things you can piece together with a degree of certainty essentially spells out a remake of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that there's a rebellion, there's a, an empire, and they've got a massive weapon, they're going to destroy everything, and the rebellion has to stop them. Uh, <laughs> that is kind of the first and third Star Wars films um, in a nutshell. Obviously, there's going to be a bit more going on there, but I think... That's kind of wise, I guess, if you haven't got a lot of time to put a, a film together that people love the universe of. Let's just kind of do something that's uh, quick and easy and maybe in the episode eight and nine, some people who've got a bit more time can pick up it, pick up and run with it. Yeah, I mean, for me, the thing that gets me worried is the sheer number of characters. Mm. Because, I mean, the thing about the first Star Wars film is that there's and even the Phantom Menace. There's a relatively small number of characters, and it progresses in a way that's you know relatively slow, and it introdu- introduces you to side characters before you meet the hero, and then you kind of go on through the story. And then as they added the films, the cast got bigger, the characters deepened, they got more complex. And this one, they're bringing back the old characters, but they're also throwing a huge number of new characters at the screen, and mm. it, it, it does make me worried that a lot of these characters will just be short-changed, especially because I think the film's only coming in at, like, two hours, uh, based on what J.J. Abrams has said. He said that the, the final cut is something like just over two hours. Uh, in fact, I think it's the exact same length as The Phantom Menace, because I looked up, out of curiosity, how long each of the films were, and it has it's exactly the same length. And mm. you just worry that if you've not got a huge amount of time and you have a huge number of characters, it will just become a little too much of a clusterfuck. Mm. Yeah, it's been. We talked about the kind of the Hobbit video that's been uh, quite a revealing watch this week. The George Lucas interview uh, that he gave about, as he terms it, his breakup with Disney, which um, seems to kind of introduce a little note of bitterness to proceedings, uh, but also a man who's kind of walking on and walking away and kind of letting them do their own thing. He kind of said something along the lines of when he sold the rights to Disney. He had a story outline for episodes kind of seven, eight, and nine, which is hard to believe because he said that he wasn't ever going to do those. And yeah, uh, unsurprisingly, they threw them out and they haven't really wanted any of his involvement, which is of no surprise given that Disney have tried incredibly hard to distance themselves from the prequels. Yeah, I mean, part of me does sympathise with George Lucas feeling that he's been cut out of this thing that he helped create. And also because... I think he said in that 
interview that he would never direct another Star Wars film because of all the criticism that he'd had. And I think he has probably had more kind of hate, amorphous hate aimed at him than any filmmaker alive. Mm-hmm. Until, you know, three months' time when J.J. Uh, Abrams gets the brunt of it. But um, <laughs> he is someone who has suffered a lot for this franchise, and he is someone who, you know, for all of their faults, and there are many, the prequels are his vision. They are what he wanted to make, and the whole set of those first six films are, they are a George Lucas work, and for all of those problems that are involved, all the kind of weird racism uh, mm-hmm. and all of the stuff that goes on in those films. And... I do, I do sympathise with him feeling that you know he he invested so many years of his life into this thing and then to be just kind of kicked out of it. But at the same time, it's it's the only way that they were going to make a new Star Wars film is if it didn't have anything to do with George Lucas because people were not ready to trust George Lucas. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He is the creator, but also the destroyer. It's very much like Hinduism. In, in, <laughs> in that sense, which is I don't think you're going to find many other places to hear that sentence. So there you go, listeners, uh, a treat for you. Yesterday, I had a film day, kind of watched, what well, like, you know, chain watched a few films, and I wanted to see an old film that I'd never seen before. So I went up to my kind of DVD shelf and had a look, and, you know, it won't surprise any of you that there's quite a lot of films I haven't seen that are kind of generally viewed as required watching. And I picked The Graduate to watch, and I've seen a lot of Mike Nichols' films, but I've never seen The Graduate, which is his most famous and kind of distinct film. And I watched it. And I got to the end, and I thought, that is clearly a masterpiece. Uh, it's an incredible film. Uh, empirically, that is amazing. But I kind of found myself in a weird quandary, in the sense that I couldn't really enjoy the film to its full extent, because it is so ubiquitous in the culture, and it has been parodied millions of times, and you see clips of it you know, done to death, you see it kind of like uh, riffed on in other films and kind of paid homage to that there was literally no scenes in that film that I hadn't encountered before in one way or another. And I found it very peculiar as an experience that I wasn't able to kind of fully enjoy the film in that sense. And kind of got me thinking, is it kind of possible to have a film kind of spoiled for you? We talk about spoilers as in, you know, plot points being released or kind of secrets being kind of like leaked or whatever. But is it possible to have a film spoiled for you just by it being really popular? I think that it absolutely is. But I feel, I in my experience, that spoilage has only really affected my first viewing of those films. Um, for example, the first time I watched Citizen Kane, I walked away thinking you know you know it's technically it's it's amazing and it's a feat of storytelling and some of the acting hasn't aged particularly well but you know that that's the time it's made but it's still that doesn't take away from a great what a great thing it was but the entire time i was watching it i was thinking oh so that's what all those episodes of the simpsons were about <laughs> because because as they have often said on you know audio commentaries and in interviews uh, the simpsons writers have said that you can basically reassemble citizen kane from episodes of the simpsons because they all have those bits in it or or like when he's um when they, they're at the birthday party and they start singing, there is a man, a certain mm. man. It's like, oh, that White Stripe song. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's all these kind of 
there's lots of moments in those films in that film that has been repurposed over and over again and obviously everyone knows what rosebud is and everyone kind of has a sense of the 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 backstory of the film and all the 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 stuff that went into it Uh, and so those were all going in my head and so i couldn't really kind of engage with the film and on subsequent viewings all that stuff is still in my mind but it gets pushed further and further back because the the shock of seeing these things or of seeing the source of all this culture that I i have experienced before kind of recedes and you're able to appreciate it more as a film and you know i had a similar thing with the graduate where the first time i watched it i was thinking of uh, wayne's world 2 mm-hmm. or again the simpsons which has done that a, a fair few times uh and then like as every subsequent viewing you kind of appreciate just how amazing like the editing during the sounds of silence sequences or how good uh, dustin hoffman's performance is or how insane it was that robert redford thought that he could play that part um, <laughs> You know, there's lots of there's lots of stuff in it that really shines through the more that you watch it. But and I, but I do feel like certainly in the case of like really big iconic films, like I feel like Psycho is probably the one that f- suffers from this the most mm. because the shower sequence in Psycho is maybe the most iconic moment in all of American cinema. Mm. You know, that's the thing that has been done to death and has been seen loads and over. So I think it's hard to find people who don't know that that someone dies in Psycho, but I feel like knowing that that she dies doesn't diminish the power of that film. It takes away from the shock of it, but it doesn't diminish, you know, what an amazing piece of work it is in in other respects. It's really unusual that you should mention Psycho, actually, because I remember I watched that for the first time in uh, A-level media studies in the late 90s. And it being the late 90s, I was kind of like, kind of my horror watching had been kind of heavily informed by that kind of more reflexive horror, like Scream and things. And I watched Psycho thinking, well, I obviously know that Janet Leigh gets stabbed to death in the shower, but, like, I thought maybe that was the film's opening. You know what I mean? Hire a famous actress and kill her off like Drew Barrymore was in Scream. Or I thought maybe that was the climax of the film and it's just a really famous ending. What really surprised me about Psycho is I didn't know there was an entire plot because that's more shocking to me that the entire plot of the film stops <laughs> and mm. then just turns out to be something completely different. They are, you know, they you know, the idea of the MacGuffin, of like, you know, the money and the theft and the escape. And then, well, there's a different film now starting with an entirely new set of characters. <laughs> and yeah, you don't know where this is going. That's kind of interesting to me. But like, kind of going back to Star Wars for a second, there's quite a lot of people I've spoke to kind of this year. And so, oh, are you kind of excited about the new Star Wars or whatever? And someone inevitably will chirp up in a room full of people and say, well, I've never seen any of the Star Wars movies. And you're like, well, okay, well, maybe you should watch them if you're going to watch the new one, because it might be a bit of a mystery. But then I was like, I can't really conceive of seeing that now, because there's there's nothing I wouldn't know about Star Wars just from the fact that it's everywhere. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of like, it, you, you know, there's, there's kind of like phrases from it that are in everyday parlance. It's so, it's such a cultural touchstone that it wouldn't, nothing in it would be surprising. You wouldn't get that kind of first time joy of watching anything. It's kind of, it's kind of peculiar. Yeah. It's kind of like when you watch a film that's been adapted from a book you really love, except it's a book that you've only read like 15 pages of, but you've got enough of the gist, the gist of it. Mm. It's very, it's a very weird experience. It's, I think it's, it's something that is kind of unique to the last 30 or 30 or 40, or 40 years of, of film culture and that's when you start to get the really referential stuff when you get into the 60s and 70s where people have grown up watching films and they they put references to films 
very explicitly in their work or you know when you get into the 80s and 90s when tv and film get a little more pop culture savvy and they just kind of do lots of jokes or, or homages and recreations and so I, I feel like it's something that is that our generation has really grown up with that you can have seen a film and know basically all the salient points without actually seeing it but i think also they can give like psycho is a good example of that but also something like the crying game i think it's very easy to get a false sense of what the crying game is about based on how it's treated in pop culture mm. because the the whole thing with the crying game is that the one of the characters is, who you think is a woman is actually a man but that is revealed like i i thought similar to you saying about psycho when i found out about that particular plot point i thought oh that must be like the shocking reveal at the end of the film mm. and it's not it happens like halfway in and then there's like a whole other like the film opens with all this stuff about the ira kidnapping an american soldier played by forrest whitaker and mm. you're like what the hell has this got to do with anything and then the film like morphs into something else entirely so i think in some cases it can actually enrich the film knowing details of it but not really knowing how exactly they they're going to play out in the final viewing of it mm. i want to end this episode uh, in, in a kind of a slightly more reflective mood and like uh, i say it's my birthday this week and i've reached my mid-30s and kind of knocking on a bit and i kind of work with some kind of guys and they're like 16 years old they've got 16 year olds now Ed. it's crazy and they're kind of getting younger all the time these kids and uh, I was talking to them the other day about films, you know, these kids uh, that were coming to me for kind of sage-like advice. And I was kind of really surprised and kind of got into talk, talking to them about their kind of favourite films and stuff. And then it kind of made me start thinking about, were there kind of favourite films I had as a youth that I'm kind of a little bit embarrassed by now? And are there films that I liked as a youth that I still love to this day? And then I kind of was forced to kind of sit down and think about my kind of film tastes and how they've developed and it's kind of odd the things that have stuck. So, like, for instance, uh, I saw Paris, Texas when I was 16, I think, or 17. And I still love that movie now. But if I look at the other films I was watching when I was 16, 17, I was absolutely obsessed by Kevin Smith films. Mm. And I thought he was the greatest writer there was. And I thought his films were fantastic. And I watched all of his films last year in a kind of an attempt to perhaps kind of revisit my youth and I found them all kind of kind of really embarrassing. And I felt terrible that I even liked them at any point. Uh, with the exception of Clerks, which I think is fine. I don't think it's amazing. I kind of was really kind of shocked that someone who could like Paris, Texas at 17 also uh, liked Jason Lee sticking his hand up his ass and, <laughs> gi- and giving Michael Rooker a brownie. When you, when you kind of uh, posited this as a as a possible subject for this episode kevin smith was one of the first ones that came to mind for me specifically mm-hmm. the film dogma which mm-hmm. i think when i first watched that you know what went around to a friend's house when we watched it on on his uh kind of big tv there she's like wow this is amazing this guy he's right star wars references but he also has you know all this stuff about religion and there's a giant shit monster you know it's all the stuff you want when you're like 16 and i was being and being like really kind of blown away by it and Rewatching it now, you know, the last time I rewatched it was probably like four or five years ago. There was still some stuff that I I kind of liked, but I also was really I have been someone who's a little bit more aware of form and technique, being aware that he's really not very good at what he does with the camera. Mm. He is very much kind of 
I'm going to have two people talking and they're going to be in a mid shot and then occasionally I'll go to a close up and then there'll be a George Lucas side wipe across the screen and then we're in somewhere else. And like, even though uh, like Alan Rickman, I think is very, very good in that film. I think he does a lot of good work. There is kind of, yeah, there's not, there's not a huge much in that that I feel holds up. It is very much just kind of a sense of being, I think in the case of Kevin Smith specifically, being overawed by his story. The mm. fact that he was a video store clerk from New Jersey who had did a semester of film school and then wrote a script and got his buddy to come down and they'd film it in the place where he worked. And he maxed out his credit cards and then he put it in a film festival, it got seen, and then he had a whole career out of it. And, you know, that is a that is an amazing story. Mm. And it is you know, it's certainly kind of me, like, kid in rural Leicestershire, thinking, wow, you know, anyone can make a film if he can make a film. And that's kind of, now that's kind of pejorative. <laughs> that anyone can make a film if Kevin Smith could make a film. But, you know, that that is kind of the thing that's really impressive about him. Similarly, like Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez has the same sort of thing, although I think he has a few more kind of solid, actually very good films under his belt. Although um, uh, Sin City was one of the ones I put on my list as a film that, I remember really liking when it came out and I was like 18 and being really impressed by it. It's like, wow, it's like a comic book on screen. And now if I said that, I would say it with disgust and anger. <laughs> Cause mm. like, I don't want to see a comic book on screen. I want to see a film. And that, you know, that, that is kind of the same sort of thing where as you, as you grow up and as you, you kind of mature and as you see more stuff, I think you, what you look for in a film changes a bit more. And that is, if I was 18 now, I'd be super excited about all of the comic book movies that are coming out. And I still am to an extent because they're fun and they're, they're, they're enjoyable. But I think I would be a lot less, I'd be a lot less discerning about how, what about them than I am now. I think I'd probably go and see every comic book film now. Whereas now it's like, yeah, I can watch Ant-Man on DVD or if it hits Netflix, <laughs> you know, I don't mm. feel like that's a film I have to see in the, in the theater. Mm. I, I think going back as well, for me, I had a kind of a weird brief kind of three or four year obsession with kind of kind of kung fu films and i don't know whether it's because being a kind of a child of the 80s when quite a lot of these films were like banned or heavily edited and kind of not released the way they were supposed to be i was just kind of into them for that because like now i can't stand watching martial arts films i I kind of appreciate them for the kind of the balletic kind of choreography of it and you know it's kind of amazing i guess but you know, more than 30, 45 seconds of a fight, and I'm really bored. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a thing. Like, I think kids, like, especially young guys, into violent films without context, which is a lot of kind of martial arts films or action films uh, generally are. Yeah, I think that is a big part of it. I feel like that is an era where you are kind of overwhelmed by how awesome things are. And if you think something is just kind of awesome in the moment, maybe you don't really care that much about how it fits into the broader story. And I think a film that I thought was awesome a lot when I was younger and which I now kind of look at a bit warily was Fight Club. (laughs) And I think like I was never as in love with it as a lot of my friends were. Like a lot of my friends were just like, this is the best film ever. And I was like, it's it's good got some good stuff but i do think that there were parts of it that were just like amazing and awesome and uh like as i as i've grown older and as i've kind of reassessed my uh opinions of that film and also just i think as as my like as politically i and you know my uh views on the world have kind of changed i look at that and i kind of think 
there's a lot of great form here and there's a lot of great performances, but it also is match, masking a uh, philosophy that is completely incoherent. <laughs> and even if the film is maybe critiquing that philosophy for being incoherent and maybe it doesn't believe in nihilism and maybe it isn't kind of an MRA kind of handbook, which is kind of what it seems a little bit like, uh, it also presents that in such a, a, an awesome way that it feels as if it's being disingenuous and trying to play both sides of it. Like you can watch it and think, yeah, men need to be more aggressive and they need to take back the world from all of these fucking pussies and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> or, or it's actually saying like, Oh yeah, all these people believe in this, they're wrong. But really, you know, isn't Tyler Durden also quite cool? You know, mm. it's taking, it's playing both, both ends of it. And that I find to be really harmful. And that's kind of the thing when I look at that film, I think, yeah, I don't, I, I, cannot enjoy this film as much as the the form of it is very very good i cannot kind of uh in good conscience watch it and without thinking this is kind of be playing with fire in a very in a way that i find you know really uh really kind of harmful mm. another example that I, I i think i mentioned on the past uh, on the show in the past of a film that i watched a lot as a kid honestly way way too much because the film it is was the uh, Disney film Song of the South, mm. which is notorious for being banned now, but for some reason we had it on VHS. And I watched it a lot because I watched all the Disney films a lot. You know, I watched Aladdin all the time. I watched Beauty and the Beast all the time. I watched uh, Pete's Dragon fairly often. And I also watched Song of the South because it's like, hey, it's, you know, an animated rabbit and uh, of this stuff with black people on what looks like a plantation. I didn't really understand what was going on with all of that. Whereas... And, and to me, it was just, you know, kind of a, a thing, a film with fun, happy songs. And, you know, Uncle Remus was kind of a, a nice older gentleman character. And then a kid gets gored by a bull at the end, which is when I would always hide behind the, the sofa. Whereas now I think I would be hiding whenever there was kind of unintentional racism on display. Um, mm. And that's a film where, like, as a kid, because I didn't understand that it was, you know, inc- at best misguided. um i just kind of watch it and think hey you know this is a fun film it's kind of got jokes it's got animation it's got songs it's got a bit of a kind of a scary moment towards the end um and but like now like i obviously haven't watched it in like 20 years because where would you watch it um i now now when i kind of think back it i think yeah there's a lot of stuff in there that is really terrifyingly awful and i can't i i kind of hate it on an intellectual level but i can't hate it on an emotional level because i haven't rewatched it in that time Mm. Yeah, absolutely. A film I loved in my kind of like formative years was Swingers. And I kind mm. of still like the film now, but when I watch it now, it makes me feel old. It's definitely a kind of uh, a young man's game. It kind of captured a, a snapshot of what it's like to be kind of out out of college and like kind of not knowing where you're going, and but kind of also kind of young and kind of, you know, vibrant and stuff. Yeah, I kind of have that with Spaced. I mean, I still love Spaced, but, you know, I think that one captures very much a period uh, that I can look back on. So yeah, where I was basically living that life for a while post university. And, you know, I feel like now I watch it in a, now, now I watch it as, um, as it's kind of tinged with nostalgia for my own life, as well as nostalgia for the show itself. And so it has a very different feel to me now than it did when I watched it for the first time, when I was 16, I think when I watched it on video or maybe 15. And then later when I would watch it at university and post university and just be like, Hey, it's just like our lives. And now it's like, 
yeah, I'm glad that's not really what I do anymore. Mm. Yeah, there's a thing, isn't there, where like you, you move through the stages of thinking characters from things you like are really cool and you aspire to be them to kind of going past them in age or kind of uh, approach them in age and thinking, oh, man, I, I don't want to do this. This is terrible. Oh, that's, hey, that's a good example. A film I absolutely love when I saw it at the cinema it was a film called Human Traffic. And mm. I think it's because, like, I grew up in a kind of a quite innocent uh, provincial town where there was no kind of like club culture, there was no kind of drugs and everything, and I kind of it, I kind of thought, oh my god, that looks like such a kind of glamorous lifestyle. And then you kind of go to university, you go to the bright lights, the big city, and you kind of meet, you kind of kind of go into that scene. You're like, this is fucking terrible. This is awful. This is like <laughs> the worst. This is the worst thing ever. I don't want to be anywhere near these people. These are assholes. I don't like this at all. Yeah, I very much distanced myself from that, and I, I refuse to rewatch it as a kind of an adult because I think I might throw my television out the window probably without <laughs> opening it first. Yeah, I think that is a big thing. Is like when you, I think, films that you like a lot as a kid, and, and again, this kind of goes back to the violence thing. I think as a, as a kid, the the prospect of kind of like really violent films or really gory films or you know really sexually explicit films, they are showing you something that you have not experienced or you know, you will never experience, hopefully, you know, you're not going to get trapped in Nakatomi Plaza and be shot in the head. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully, yeah, that's the sort of thing you wouldn't want to experience, but it's fun watching, you know, Bruce Willis go through that experience and kind of help people. Uh, it's it's better not to be, you know, especially because I think if anyone watching that, maybe says something psychologically about me that I watched there, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be one of the people who dies. I'm not going to be the guy in the in the vest getting his feet cut up, but ultimately saving the day. No, I'm I'm going to be one of the ones who gets gets killed instantly. They're showing you experiences that you you have not yet had, may never have, and they inter there's an allure to them that you know makes you overlook maybe the the fact that they are terrible films in other ways. And um, yeah, I think that Human Traffic is a very good example of that. You know, it shows you this culture which. When you when you're young, looks really alluring, and then when you actually go and experience it, when you go to raves and stuff, well, certainly my experience as someone who went to a few raves kind of early on in uni, and then I was like, no, I'd rather go to like an indie night and see a band. This mm. this this whole thing is not really me. Yeah, I think it's also uh, something I've learned as I've got older is there's nothing less interesting than other people's drug stories, mm. and unless you're Hunter S. Thompson. Yep. or William Burroughs, you know, you're just an arsehole. And, you know, the people who made human traffic, just arseholes who happened to get some money and told incredibly boring drug stories. That's That's been my birthday episode. I've enjoyed it very much. I got to kind of talk about something, got some things off my chest, and I feel kind of uh, better for it. Let's do some recommends this week. I'm going to pick... Um, something which is kind of shock no one that it's good because you've probably already seen it um, but I'm very late to the party I am talking about the TV show Friday Night Lights um, which uh, Ed has been good banging on about for years uh, I saw the movie actually uh, when it came out and I didn't ever kind of follow up by watching the TV series but it kind of dropped on Netflix about six months ago and I've been meaning to watch it and I'm halfway through season three and uh, that's a fucking amazing TV show. It's it's fantastic. It's one of the best network dramas of the last 10 years. And I think it's amazing, certainly from the pilot onwards, it's amazing to see a kind of digital, uh, introspective, almost impressionistic 
approach to what could be in other hands could be like one tree hill could be a very kind of soapy it's obviously a soap but it's handled in a way that feels very very different you know Mm. i think the fact that the music is uh, based on but not but legally distinct from the music of explosions in the sky um it kind of keys keys into that the fact that it's this kind of echoey slightly dissonant music that but also tuneful kind of keys into the whole thing and that the the at the heart of these stories very recognizable human stories but they're presented in a way that is you know in very very different to what you would usually see in kind of a glossy nbc uh, drama mm. i was kind of struck uh by the first season episode uh which is called i think we should have sex mm. which is the story of matt saracen and coach taylor's daughter deciding that they were going to both lose their respective virginities to each other, not separately, that'd be weird. And I kind of watched that, and I thought, hang on, this is an episode in which, you know, there's not been a single sporting cliche. I've not even seen a football, I don't think. And there's not many shows that I would have been interested in this kind of side storyline with two kind of characters that I didn't, at the start of the season, I didn't think could probably sustain an episode on their own, but it was really compelling. And then again, you have that idea of thinking, well, hang on, in lesser hands, this is the OC. (laughs) Um, But somehow, you know, it's just, there's this kind of depth of feeling that kind of surrounds everyone and you kind of just with them every single kind of second. And it's quite masterful how it does that kind of quite unsuspectingly. Uh, yeah, I think you also see that in some of the performances. I think that, um, like, I, I've harped on about how much I really like Taylor Kitsch as an actor, even though his film work has been underwhelming to date. And I think Bo- that, Box Office Poison, Taylor Kitsch. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that that show really knew how to use him well, how to use the fact that he's a very good-looking guy, but how he can be, in the right moments, you know, quite soulful and really kind of, you know, really charismatic and very laid-back... I'm probably never going to leave this town kind of way, you know, a, mm. a kind of a younger version of the Wooderson character from, uh, from uh, Dazed and Confused, mm. you know, kind of a hometown hero sort of thing. He has that lazy charisma that really works there. Also, I think the show was very heavily improvisational, both in terms of the dialogue, but also the staging. I think reading, uh, I remember reading about essentially they would just go into a scene with cameras not really knowing what was going to happen in terms of the body movements they just allowed people to really do what they wanted and that's the sort of thing you don't really do in john carter because it costs a lot of money Mm. yeah yeah it's yeah it's just really interesting companion to the film i really like to read the book as well it's great um, because uh it's yeah it's that's a kind of a weird case study for adaptations isn't it because it's been a book it's been a tv show and it's been a film, and it's all—all all of them have been kind of successful in in their own way. Um, what have you got? Ed? I'm going to recommend something that you can also watch on Netflix. I'm going to recommend the sketch show with Bob and David, the mm. pseudo sequel, but not really, but kind of yes, to Mr. Show, the seminal sketch show that aired on HBO from 1994 to. Uh, or 1995 maybe till uh, 1998 which was created by bob odenkirk and david cross the bob and david of the title and featured a murderous row of writers and performers who would go on to have great success uh, in their own right in other forms paul f Tompkins, john ennis tom kenny most famous now for being the voice of spongebob squarepants mary lynn rice club until she broke up with david cross and wasn't on the show anymore <laughs> uh, uh who else was on it scott ockerman in a, a small role 
Dino Stamatopoulos, all of these kind of guys who, and, and women, but mainly guys, because it's comedy and it's a very male-dominated field. They kind of created this show that was this really incredibly funny, but also very smartly constructed show that had a lot of really interesting structural things to do with comedy and really kind of took on lots of interesting uh, forms and lots of interesting uh, ideas. And then uh, they all dispersed to the wind and became incredibly successful in their own right. And then uh, for the 20th anniversary, they were thinking about doing a tour, trying to get those people, but then they realized that it would actually be better to get people to come back and do a short show and Netflix picked them up for four episodes and the results are really funny. Uh, the first episode is a bit hit and miss, but the second, third and fourth are really, really strong. Uh, it's great seeing all of these actors come back and, you know, kind of do things that they, they haven't, in some cases, haven't done for a while. In some cases, you know, have, have kind of honed their craft. And it's interesting seeing how those sense of humours have evolved in that time. Um, and it's, it's really, really good. There's a very, very funny and very kind of a provocative sketch called Better Roots, which is where David Cross plays a filmmaker who has made a version of Roots, which removes any of the talk of slavery... <laughs> <laughs> uh, in order to aggrandize the white characters uh, and is very interesting and very good in terms of showing how people who make films about slavery or about any kind of difficult period in history will uh, sanitize aspects of it and in that instance referring to slaves as helpers and having the whipping scene end with the whip carrier like being chastised for it saying what the hell are you doing you know and then saying hey I thought this was how it was meant to work and uh, it's yeah, it's, it's goes into some very kind of provocative areas, and uh, there's also with it, much as with the Wet Hot American Summer TV series, there is a document, a making of documentary uh, accompanying it, which is interesting mainly because there's a couple of interviews with Scott Ackerman in there when he is incredibly earnest and seems on the verge of tears throughout, which is not something I'm used to from seeing him be, you know, kind of his very much ironically detached self on Comedy Bang Bang. Uh, and it also offers an insight into how the show gets made and how the creative process works between David Cross and Bob Odenkirk, which seems to consist mainly of David Cross coming up with a terrible idea and Bob Odenkirk making it work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's one that I've, cause I've only ever seen bits of Mr. Show. I've never actually, I don't think I've actually seen a full episode. It's kind of tough if you're a UK viewer and you kind of import the box set, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's, on, my, uh, it's on my Netflix uh, list. I will get to it. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with something. In the meantime, uh, you can subscribe to us on, on the iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio and uh, Player FM. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter and at our website, which is srspodcast.podbean.com. Uh, we can find links to all those things in there too. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.